Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Delicious Podcast with me, Julie Smith. This week, we're mirroring Delicious Magazine's Taste Like Home feature with award-winning food writer, Sybil Kapoor. And she describes how one of the very first recipes she cooked as a teenager has developed into one of the delicious recipes in her fascinating new book, Sight, Smell, Touch, Taste, Sound. Well, I think it has to be um, the bacon onion tart with sour cream. This is a dish that I started cooking very, very early on as a sour onion tart, which came from a Katie Stewart recipe book. And that was what I learnt to cook on when I left home. My mother gave it to me. She'd cooked the tarts at home. And the variations that I've done on that recipe have gone on since I was about 18 or 19. Mm. So it really is a taste of my past. Yeah, so that's really interesting because it's a great way in to talk about your book, which is a, a reminder of how we cook and how we eat. So slowing down and, and really kind of noticing again how we use our senses. Absolutely. It, like you, you know, I, I've carried on cooking and have been cooking all my life. And um, I'd got to a stage and I thought, I really want to put down what I think is my theory of cooking. Um, and I'd written about different aspects of senses, like taste and flavour in the past. But my husband's a neurologist and he said, look, you know, you don't just think about things in those ways. You think about everything, like the texture and the temperature and how it looks. So he sort of highlighted to me how actually I was thinking but I hadn't sort of thought about it in a funny way myself and I started to break it down and realised that it was absolutely fascinating because actually what it makes you do is even although you know how to make a delicious tart or you know how to make a yummy soup you don't know why it's yummy and I think that uh, I, f I found it was a really a real journey for me actually writing the book and um, changed how I felt about everything. It made me aware of feeling alive because your each aspect, so taste is quite obvious, you're looking at the five tastes, but flavour, which is smell, is not so obvious in the sense that actually your environment, how that smells, influences how you cook. And I started, as I was writing that chapter, sniffing everything, <laughs> and I mean everything, because uh, you need to understand bad smells as well as good. Yeah. And that in itself highlights your awareness or heightens, heightens your awareness. So give us, a, give us an example of that. So what were you sniffing and how did it change a recipe that you were actually working on? So, so for example, um, in summer, um, I might be, you know, I might go for a walk in the park and there'd be the amazing smell of lavender or roses. And if I happened to buy at the farmer's market some fruit, then the natural thing would be to say, well, actually, you know, a fruit salad would taste incredible with the syrup infused in lavender. 
or rhubarb jelly would taste wonderful with rose water in it. And so that's, those, those um, smells link very naturally together. But that has the, the added effect that when you serve it to someone else, they haven't been in the park, they haven't been to the farmer's market, mm. but they will suddenly think, oh, you know, it's a taste of summer, it, it's got that smell. And they won't be thinking, oh, I'm smelling this. It's just being released in their mouth mm. as they eat. Yeah, and it's more than, than smell. I mean, you, you go through all the different senses. So, I mean, things like um, sound was really interesting. Tell me about sound. And th- this is one of the culturally specific parts of the book because in many ways you know we are a global nation and we all love to smell cumin as much as we love to smell I don't know lemons Um, but sound was culturally specific it was I mean it is quite fascinating Um, sound comes from texture so the book is divided into um, taste smell as in flavor texture temperature and appearance and texture of course affects how something sounds so you can have slurpy noodles or you can have a crunchy salad and what I found really interesting is that I love crunchy food and I think a lot of Britons do um, again my husband finds it really difficult if I'm eating something really noisy like a package of twiglets <laughs> <laughs> he finds that difficult because in Indi- he's Indian and in India sounds are much softer in that in that respect in terms of when you eat but for example in Japan it's considered uh, polite to actually suck up your noodles and make lots of <laughs> noises as you do because then actually when you think about it it's a bit like tasting wine you're releasing flavors and cooling the liquid as it goes into yeah. your mouth yeah. so there's all sorts of different aspects. tell us about squeaky beans oh squeaky beans <laughs> well, i remember simon hopkinson i think writing about this years ago but actually people either love squeaky green beans or they hate them and I, I don't mind it at all, but actually, when you think about it, when you cook beans, if they're not really soft, green beans, they make a squeaky noise in your mouth. Yeah. And some people really, really hate it. Yeah. But sound goes even further. So, for example, if you buy a packet of crisps and the bag doesn't pop open, then people think, well, the crisps aren't fresh because you haven't had that popping sound. And the same with if you think about a breadstick. If you snap a breadstick, it makes you think, it gives you a sense of anticipation that you're going to really enjoy eating that. It's going to be crunchy. Yeah. Yeah, and you call that section anticipation, and I love that. Yes. You know, it's it's about, and again, it's about breaking down the process of eating. Yes. Um, yes. One of the other things I really found fascinating and, and made me question a lot about the way that I prepare food is the sight bit, yes. and you call it appearance. Well, appearance was the hardest chapter to write, and again, it's something I've always struggled with because when I first learned to cook, I was a really, really messy cook. And at the time that I learned, I'm a certain age, I'm 60, um, people were very into nouveau cuisine and everything was absolutely perfect on the plate and I could not do it. And I still can't do it, I have to say, even though I've been cooking for years. So I'm what is termed a very messy cook and I found my freedom when I went to the States and at that time in the mid-80s, everything was free fall and big piles and lovely open look and that suited me perfectly yeah this was when i was at a restaurant called jams and so what it was was you would plate an an amazing salad but you'd literally let the salad fall from your bowl about a foot down onto the not quite but you know you'd control it down onto the plate so you get this tremendous airy pile so it would look very naturalistic because you say that you can really sort of find yourself in the way that you present your food and this really had me thinking who am i (laughs) i have no idea actually (laughs) who are you on the table um 
I am verging on the Japanese in the sense that I like things very simply presented and I sort of tend to opt for white plates. I'm not a frilly person. So I, I would I would put the analogy actually to being like clothes. I'm more G Muir than uh, sort of um, Laura Ashley. Yes. So straight lines and clear cut yes. and um, t- maybe two colours rather than f- lots of flowers. I, I, I'm quite, I'm more minimal. I love soft colours and I, but I love nature. So everything is very natural. It's not too prearranged. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to capture a sense of seasonality. I would say I love capturing seasonality in nature in my food because that's part of my identity I love I'm sort of quite rural at heart even though I live in the city Um, and I want people to just feel relaxed with food so I'm relaxed I have a very relaxed style yeah because actually it can be very off-putting can't it when you go to a dinner party and suddenly you see a a table laid like something out of Petersham Nurseries and you think (laughs) oh my god I could never do that yes I know well my problem is that being a food writer people always expect everything to be amazing and I'm always really embarrassed because I think god you know I'm wiping the plate before it goes out and um, so I always feel that they might be a bit disappointed and I, I often get people to help themselves actually because again uh, that, that allows them the thing and, and, I, and it's very funny with people with my food because I can see them say oh I'm not sure about this because I give a lot of salads and they sort of plate it out and then it's only when they start eating it that they then say oh actually I have a bit more because <laughs> they're a bit worried I think initially <laughs> because it's not overly beautiful it's, it's simple it's simple food so this oh, is yes. something I'm exploring quite a lot I just went to California on a wine trip with a whole load of sommeliers and wine buyers and mm-hmm. wine writers and it was absolutely <laughs> terrifying um, and it was what I felt was that my palate wasn't good enough I, I wasn't as good as them and I wonder when you say trust your senses, whether you think that there is a such thing as a good palate and a bad palate in a cook. Oh, that's a very difficult question. Um, there's two answers to that. First of all, the answer is you should trust your own palate because what you like is what you like, and that what doesn't. If you're feeding somebody else. Well, so we'll start with what you like. So if, if you like something, that, there's nothing wrong in that. There is no such thing as something being wrong, in my view. I think that in terms of understanding how things work, I can read recipes and think, ooh, why have they put that with that? I won't say what or who. Um, because to me, it's not very appealing. So I think that there are very good guidelines um, that I think you can learn. Certain people have different palates, like certain people are what's called super tasters. All that means is that they have a heightened awareness. You know, they they taste more sinus or more bitterness than the average person. And some people have lower levels and they taste less. And I suspect that's where you're getting good and bad coming in. It's something as simple as that. I mean, say somebody can't smell. You know, my husband can't smell. And can often, my father used to do the same, put way too much chilli in stuff until it was a little bit overpowering. Mm. Um, I, think, I think the thing to say is that with all types of goods, whether you can, how much you smell or how much chilli you like, the, the palate is a very adaptable thing. So, for example, my husband can eat far more chilli than me, but he will still taste other things, but I won't. I'll just taste the chilli. So it is about learning. So if you're cooking for other people... I think less is more. Mm. Always start with less. People can add mm. le- lemon or sinus to something. They can add salt. Mm. The other fascinating thing is, and again this goes back to taste actually, 
is that the more sugar or the more salt you add to something, the less sweetness you can taste with more salt, with more sugar, and the less salt you can taste with more salt. So you add more and more and more. Mm. So it's actually worth going cold turkey and reducing it radically and then adding little bits. And people won't think you're a bad cook because you haven't seasoned it properly. <laughs> no, I don't think so because you can actually tell them why you're doing yes. it and in fact they can test their palates well, against in yours. Fact, that was what I was going to suggest for a fantastic <laughs> dinner party game. What I love about this is there's lots of things you can try out. Yes. So when you're, I can't remember which one it was, it was one of the first ones, the bay leaf. Is it about taste? Taste and flavour. So the because a lot of people don't understand the difference between taste and flavour. So one is airborne; it's released by the air, and that's how you detect it in your nose. And the other taste is waterborne, and that's through your mouth with your saliva. And the easiest way to do this is a bit cruel, but <laughs> you give people a bay, each bailey, a clean bay leaf. <laughs> and first of all, you get them to just crush the bay leaf in their hand or rip it and sniff it, and they'll recognise that that's what they consider to be a smell, that's the flavour yeah. of the bay leaf. Now you get them to take a teeny weeny bite of the bay leaf and it is horrible. It's really bitter. <laughs> but it shows you that's bitterness. Yeah. Some people have difficulty distinguishing between bitterness and sourness. Yeah. So again, you can do that with lemon. You can do a sour juice and then you can do the bitter rind. Yes. And smell is very interesting because you can go around and start uh, seeing how many smells you can detect. And that's training. So you were saying, like, you know, when you were with the wine people, you know, you felt, oh, I don't know anything. And I'm the same. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't <laughs> tell what this is, you know, even though I've been cooking for years. But you can train your palate, and you can learn enormous amounts. And, it, and actually, by just analysing what's going on, you will pick up far more. Mm. And this is something I wanted to talk about, actually, which is about texture is also detected by your hands, Ooh. almost. So that, you know, if you pick up a chip and you'll, you'll pick out whether it's got salt on it or how fatty it is before you've even put it in your, or greasy, you know, before you put it in your mouth. So you've already put some interpretation into your mind before you've eaten it. Yes. And it's the same with softness and texture, all those things. So if you pick up, one of the recipes is mutter paneer. Mm. So if the, mat, the, the paneer is hard, you'll, pick it, you'll feel it with your fingers before it's even in your mouth. Mm. And your lips are very sensitive, so you can start really analysing how do you eat things. You know, if you pick something up, does it change yeah. how you perceive the food? Or if you eat it with a fork versus chopsticks, it changes how you cut the food, how you, how you, what food is in your mouth, because a fork will be smudged up. Yeah. Chopsticks, you only get a few pieces on at one go. Yes, and, and also that is the same for how hot or how cold something yes. is. I didn't want the book to seem too technical. And so what I wanted was to add lots of little experiments all the way through that you can test, because I think that the best way to learn is by practical experience. So a good example is, like, do you like your toast soggy, or do you like it cold or hot and crispy? And you can test it out with how the butter goes on it and mm. things like that. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of information. Um, that's what I mean about sort of just taking you back to how you cook how and is, how yes. you eat. It's about mindfulness. Yes. It's a lot of. Yes. Are you aware of terms like that? Because no, uh, <laughs> I can see you don't like that no, term. I hate the term mindfulness. <laughs> no, I mean I I love the idea of people being aware. So yes, that is mindfulness, but only aware in the sense that it adds pleasure mm. I don't want people to come oh my god I've forgotten to do this or oh, this isn't right mm. that takes away the fun of cooking and cooking and eating should be a pleasurable experience 
Um, I want people to really enjoy life and enjoy living, and part of that is enjoying eating, and part of that in my world is cooking. Um, Taking it back to that original mm. recipe, if you were to cook that mm. now, using what you've learned yourself yeah. from the process of writing this book, what would you do with each of those constituent parts to bring out the flavours or to enhance the texture? Or, uh, well, again, it, that's a very good question. And actually knowing what I know now, I would say, so first of all, the thing is to think about the texture of the tart. So with the tart, you, I would want to have a crisp pastry base. So I would partially bake it to start with before adding my filling. The second element is, do I want the filling layered or a smooth texture? So in the recipe in the book, we've got very, um, we've got little pieces of bacon and soft and sautéed onion. The bacon will release nuggets of umami as you chew through the crisp pastry and the soft uh, filling. Then you have the filling. So the filling, the custard, I've added sour cream because it's slightly sour. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, it's almost too umami, too sweet. You want to get something to cut the intensity of those flavours and tastes. Mm -hmm. So this, that's the sour cream. And then there's the temperature. Mm. So the temperature, for me, the perfect temperature is actually probably sort of tepid when it's not too cold, not too hot. If you eat it cold, the texture changes, it gets more solid. If you eat it hot, it's really wobbly and fluffy. So for me personally, I like the creamy texture of tepid. And also the flavour changes according to the temperature because you taste more as it gets tepid and then less again if it's chilled. And then the appearance, oh, eating with your fingers as well. I prefer that to having with a fork. And then lastly, the appearance. Well, again, it doesn't matter if it's a bit wonky because it's, don't worry, you know, I'd like you to make your own pastry, but if you don't, don't worry, just buy ready-made. And if it's wonky, it's still going to look really sweet. You can just say, well, it's very, in inverted commas, artisan. Mm, absolutely. And you could have it for lunch with a salad, or you could have yeah. it as a lovely little starter a dinner party exactly exactly thanks for listening to the delicious podcast do let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast by getting in touch through the usual social media channels at delicious mag coming up next week a special on manchester's food scene sponsored by woodall charcuterie and co-presented with me by river cottages stephen lamb see you next week
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.